Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on DubLab. And today I'm joined by The Mill's Chief Creative Officer and all-round powerhouse, Phil Crow. Hey, Phil. Hello. Powerhouse. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, established in London in 1990, visual effects and post-production company The Mill has since gone global with offices in New York, LA, Chicago, Bangalore, and Berlin. Phil joined the mill in London in 1997 as a runner after graduating from Ravensbourne College. Ten years later, he, along with his friend Chris Knight, would take the mill over to LA as the West Coast founders. Since then, Phil has built the team up 20-fold while always maintaining that close-knit feel. Over the years, Phil has led multi-award-winning campaigns, including Levi's Dangerous Liaisons, He's forged relationships with some of the industry's top directors, including Chris Cunningham, working together on Porter's Head's Only You and Madonna's Frozen. And he's got to collaborate with some of his favorite childhood creatives, including Peter Saville. In addition to all this, he's had a hand in more than 50% of the Super Bowl ads in the last five years. Phil, it's so great to have you here. Hello. It's so great to be here. I think I nodded off then. <laughs> <laughs> what with all the well, with all know. the accolades? Well, you know, it's embarrassing. <laughs> oh no! Don't you don't have to be British here, you know? Um, so, firstly, why do you think I chose "So Long, Marianne" as your opening track? I'm trying to work that out. Are you, you going to explain it, or do I? All I'll say is, in the last year, I think I received probably one of the greatest gifts from you very sort of surprisingly after I did a talk at the mill um and what was the gift Phil it was <laughs> if you can remember uh, or did you just go handing out rare photos just, of Leonard Cohen to just, everyone yeah, I got several at home. <laughs> uh, no it was um a photograph of uh, Leonard Cohen and actually, I forgot to mention Chris uh, Chris Woods the photographer uh who's a director uh, I work with Canadian director and photographer and we were working together once, and we were talking about music, and he showed me his photographs of Leonard Cohen, and I said, I've got a friend who absolutely loves Leonard Cohen. Actually, before that, he said, I've got a couple of prints if you would like one, and I've got this thing when people ask you if you're a fan of a certain artist. Say, Len Leonard Cohen's one of them. Obviously, I'm aware of him, I like his stuff, but I could never say I'm a fan because it would insult the fans out there like Beatty. So Chris said, would you like one of these photographs? I said, I would, but would it be okay if I gave it as a gift? And that's why you ended up having it. Because I, same for me with Joy Division on your order. There's a lot of people who say they like Joy Division, but I really like Joy Division. Well, that kind of thing, if that makes sense. It makes absolute sense. And all I'll say is I was incredibly touched. It's one of the best photos I've seen of him um beautifully framed <laughs> you, you know how to frame a well, photo that was Glenn reclaimed frame <laughs> in Santa Monica <laughs> um and why that particular track for me yeah I don't know <laughs> so long okay so it wasn't the most brilliant brainwave particularly but you are soon to be leaving the mill oh yes sorry <laughs> it's very early um I've never heard that track before Seriously? That's no, brilliant. Okay, yeah. okay. I was going to embarrassingly ask you who it was then. Um, but yes, uh, yeah, 22 years of, uh, of being at the mill. It's um, my final uh, 
final few months really. So January will be the last sort of Super Bowl I I, uh, I sort of look after in the mill, and then uh, on to pastures new. Well, we're going to talk more about all of that, um, but. We met originally, I think it was through Dan Rutstein a number of years ago, uh, to condense our relationship in just a few sentences, uh, your passion for music. And I think in some ways how music got you doing what you've been doing for so many years in the first place um, is so apparent. But also that appreciation of good storytelling, appreciating limits, knowing how to kind of work within limitations and really excel. And also, like, we, we've we got to work together. You know, you were very much fundamental in making the Raw Space video happen, which, you know, is a documentation of probably one of my favorite moments in my lifetime. And that was so amazing working with you on that. Um, and then also this new environmental protest piece. So... Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I have a lot of love for what you do, but also just as as a friend, you know, it's been wonderful creating things together and I look forward to more. Yeah, it's perfect because it's, uh, you know, the, being at the mill, it's set up a brilliant framework for me to, even though it's a very commercial-driven business, there's so many people you work with that are, you know, incredible artists that had similar education to me or, or in some way, have got a background that overlaps, and you know, music, art, design, architecture—it's all one amazing melting pot. And if you can have a framework that can, I guess, encompass all of that, that's kind of where we fit in. You know, bizarrely, we met um, Dan, who was was he British consulate at the time? I mean, I never thought I'd been hobnobbing with the British consulate, <laughs> but then people introduced me to like you. It's like great. Immediately, you just know that. You don't know quite what it is, and you could never really sit down and work out a business plan. We're going to do this. You just sort of do it. And then out of that comes, I think, the amazing stuff that you've been doing that's, you know, director, one of the most important things he told me is what LA gives you, other than any other place, you know, I've ever lived or worked, is access. And everything we've, we've ever discussed or you've ever brought to us, it's like, why wouldn't we do that? So, And we also had a shared love of the famous five Yes. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> Which, <laughs> we got, no, we ain't got time to name no, 21 let's, let's move on. We can just drop that in there for American people that don't know what that is. You don't really need to know. <laughs> There's so many jokes in there as well. That's trouble. <laughs> so, the, you know, the idea of this show, as you know, is to look at the music that has kind of informed who you are, um, some of your musical DNA, and the title of this whole exploration, Orange Juice for the Ears, is taken from an Oliver Sacks quote about the power of music. Uh, and I just want to ask what this quote means to you. Music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. Um, I think it's just everything to, to everyone, really. And it's, a, it's very rare when you you meet someone, especially in our you know our circle and our industry, that isn't into music, because that's like you know spending a lot of time on set, and music's a brilliant leveler. The, the questions that are, are coming up are amazing because it got me to question everything from being a kid and where it all started and and why. But yeah, I think I think it can do so much for people's obviously mood, state of mind. You know, there's a reason why the Smiths. So amazing and popular, because you know Morrissey was a miserable sod, 
<laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, that connected with massive amounts of you know, adolescence. Same with everything, really. I, I mean, uh, one of the guys I used to work with, he says, there's no good song that's a happy song. And uh, Ali Willis would have your well, guts for breakfast. I don't know if that's an expression. Well, and, uh, and maybe Andy Williams as well. There's, there is a few out there, but I know I kind of know what he means. Cause, I mean, he was really into Smith's Joy Division and he came from like the punk, post-punk sort of area. He was a bit older than me, so uh, I sort of know what he means. But um, I don't really know if I've answered that question. But So what was the first song that imprinted on you, Phil? Well, so obviously I had these questions for a few days, so I've sat on them. It has to be Winner Takes It All by ABBA. And... I know I'm going to get laughed at by a certain person and a few people, actually, for using this phrase, but the phrase Proustian Rush could not be any more uh, apt for this. I, It's probably... I'm not really renowned for being, you know, that, that emotional, but this song is probably one of the only songs that sort of really, you know, makes me cry a bit because it reminds me of uh, being at home, my mum in the kitchen and me uh, playing with my Lego and my Matchbox cars on this brown patterned carpet that was divided into squares but with a pattern it's just weird it's just a very vivid memory and that's the weird thing that no matter how many times i listen to that song wherever i am i still go back to that uh, i think it was five years old or four and a half actually yeah probably four depending on when it came out well let's take a listen to the winner takes it all by abba Hey, this is BT Wolf. You're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. I'm here with Phil Crow, Chief Creative Officer. What a title of the mill. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was The Winner Takes It All by ABBA. And that was the first song that imprinted on you, age four or five, yeah. uh, back in Barnsley in yep. South Yorkshire, mid 70s. No, 1980. Okay, 1980. I, I, to be honest, I did think it was like a little bit earlier. Yeah. So I was trying to work out when I was at school. I think I went to school when I was five. And <laughs> you were there um, on your patterned rug yeah. building. Was not my patterned rug. No. No, no mum's. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect you to own five, your own home. five years. <laughs> I chose my, own, chose my own carpets. What were you building? I think it was the shell... Um, my brother Rob's going to criticise this because he'll he'll claim that. Don't think about of, Rob, Phil. Uh, Get Rob know. out of your yeah, head. Yeah, he's in there. No, uh, Shell. I think it's a Shell Lego garage. Okay, so building things even from a young age. And I've always liked <laughs> logos. I think the Shell Raymond Lowy. Okay, so and what was paint a picture of home life back then? Um, Mum and dad, uh, and two older brothers. Um, my dad. Um, has had a garage for, for years, has uh, now retired, um, mending cars. So I've always always worked on cars with my dad. So I've always been the more practical of the, the brothers. Mum worked at Max and Spencer's for, well, as long as I can remember, actually. Um, I think that was 1980. I remember going going to Doncaster when she was training. So I remember that really well. And then, so Robert and Michael, so Mike's middle brother, he's a doctor, and uh, Robert is a um, chemist. So I'm a bit of the black sheep of the family they're incredibly bright uh, uh, academics and i was the hey you said uh, proustian rush well <laughs> yeah it's, it's pretty bright in my in my books yeah but mike 
I think Mike taught me that, that phrase. I said, if only there was a phrase, Mike, that you could hear some music or, or taste something that took you back to a, mem- a memory of your childhood. And he went, yeah, it's called the Proustian Rush. And I went, oh, I thought I'd invented something then, but clearly haven't. And was music a big part of your family life growing up? Yeah, there was always a record player. I mean, it's, I presume many people say this when they grow up. There was a record player and lots of vinyl there. And I love the fact that, you know, you could move a needle, play it and all that. And I, I spent I spent a lot of time headphones on in the in the lounge at the time. We got this um Awa Music Centre from Mum and Dad's friend Tony and Sue. Remember that? And that's where I used to, you know, listen to a lot of stuff like that. But um Rob, I can't not mention our Rob with with this because when uh, when me and my other brother did his best man speech, uh, as you know, in especially England and the North, you don't say anything nice about your brother on a best man speech. But I did miss the opportunity to thank Rob for, you know, massively influencing me on um, on music. Really, you know, I remember you saying that he exposed you to New Order for the first time. Yeah. Um, and a bunch of stuff that I guess he'd record John Peel yeah. um, and record it on cassette and play it to you. Um, and just the impact that that had exposing you to then Peter Saville through Factory yeah. Records and Talking Heads, William Eggleston and... And T-Bar Kalman. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, th- uh, th- that's the biggest sort of thing I probably never said really. I mean, I was conned undeniably by my brother to buying subculture in 1985 because I had a car cleaning round so I had, I had the most sort of disposable income of the brothers at 11 or 10 and we bought subculture and it actually didn't have a sleeve it was a, like a white label um, version of it um, and then after that we bought Blue Monday and then I think my cousin Patrick who's also a graphic designer he had Remaining Light remember that imprinting on me as well that, that cover because that actually was designed by Tibor Kalman. But bizarrely, the the faces, it's it's basically the first time I think images were scanned. It was done at MIT in um, Boston. Uh, and it was the first time you could basically draw on a computer image. And the band actually did that with a stylus. If you look at the cover, it's, it's their eyes and their faces. They've been sort of scrubbed out digitally. And bizarrely, that's kind of what, I've made my career on. So kind of ties in bizarrely very nicely. So uh, Thanks, Rob. <laughs> cheers, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> and how old were you, you know, when you were being exposed to that kind of stuff? Uh, so 85 would have been 10. I think 85, 86, yeah, 10. Uh, I'd previously had a dalliance with uh, Ultravox and Incantation, which uh, my brothers love to bring up. But I remember going to a school Christmas party when I was about eight or nine, and my mate Jason had taken, we had to bring a, a single, and he'd brought in Roland Rat Rat Rapping, which you should research, horrific record. But I think it was Christmas number one. He was really proud of that. And I brought in uh, Catch a Pie by Incantation, which is, you know, a Peruvian panpipe band. And then, I, <laughs> to be fair, growing up in Barnsley, uh, and there was nine nine lads in uh, in our class, and I brought in that. I realised there was something. I realised there was something a bit different, different going on about me. Uh, but you know, whether it was just I was a pretentious tool or I just had a bizarre uh, I don't know and I do th- I do credit Rob for that Mike can't get any credit he only had pet sounds hey, hey. <laughs> which is not bad yeah you know, let's, let's be honest um thanks so yeah, to both of them I think ex- being exposed to stuff at, at an early age is I don't think you can naturally 
uh, teach taste, but I think if you're exposed to a real range of stuff. So tell me about the first album that had you know big impact in that way. I think it has to be the, the, the debut album, Stone Roses, The Stone Roses. Uh, and again, this album came in 1989. Rob sent me it on a tape uh, from Durham University, where he was. And I think then I went on and kind of owned that album, if you know what I mean. It was the first, even though Rob had tipped me off, it was like the coming-of-age album at school. And I, I, I think I got credited bringing it into Royston Comprehensive. And everybody wanted a copy, and, and then we all started wearing flares. <laughs> Well, let's take a listen to Waterfall by the Stone Roses. Hey, this is BT Wolf. You're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dub Lab. I'm here with Mr. Crow. Oh, not my dad. <laughs> my dad's coming. Could be. Honestly, I don't uh, want my dad on the radio. No? Be on for hours. Okay. Well, how long are we going to go on well, for today? But you need subtitles for my dad, so <laughs> you can't have that on the radio. So that was Waterfall by the Stone Roses um, off the Stone Roses 1989, and that was the first album that had a big impact on you um and you were about 15 at the time I think, yeah fif- yeah 15 when it when I, when I first did it but yeah it's that you know there's a lot of albums you can talk about with certainly the you know new order and, and joy division prior to that that did really get me into the fact that you could actually have a career in design doing something you actually really loved because i've got two academic brothers growing up who you know played with a chemistry set and walked around the house reading shakespeare and i was like in the garden. <laughs> I don't know. Do what in the garden? <laughs> I don't know. I think mum said I was once chasing a bee. I think she, I think she you know, I think I've told this story many times, but she said that she was, un, she was never worried about me, but she, because she does remember trying to get my brothers out of the books and out of the chemistry set and trying to get me in the house. I think I was like running around the garden with a bucket on my head with loads of clothes on. Apparently I was really good at like putting clothes on. That was my, that was my, that was my, like Rob, <laughs> Rob went to Durham University, became, you know, wrote a paper on chemistry, <laughs> plastics. Mike went to the doctor, and that's that's what I achieved. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. chasing a bee I and putting clothes on. Yeah, with a bucket on my head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Phil, from that, you know, you you blossomed into quite the swan. True, but you know. Not that the listeners can see, but I have actually got a bucket on my head. <laughs> yeah. Still the bucket. That's why the sound's a little yeah. funny yeah, at times. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, and that, so you were saying that that record really felt, that was like the first thing that felt like yours. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, you get to that age, 14, 15, and, you know, when you're given stuff by your brother or your family and things like that, it's never quite yours. And it was, I don't know, just that. And like the few lads at work who are from, you know, there's a lad at work from Stockport, we went to see Peter Hook the other night and we just talk about stuff like that. You know, he's a couple of years younger than me, but we we shared that same five year at school where that album came out and what it meant to people of my generation. And, and certainly, I think us Northerners would, would say that, that is our album. And I, I like you know. how you say you 
bought it in every format and you've listened to it in every place yeah. that you've lived. Yeah. And does it still feel like a big part of your identity when you hear that, you know, does it still have that moment of kind of defining who you were? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think the weird the weird thing is doing this um well not exercise but doing this with you over the last few days it's like the thing about taste and I've almost established the kind of person I am quite early on. If anybody knew my dietary requirements would probably say the same. But um there's something about like that album. I had it on mini disc I think as well. But like yeah, listening to it, just driving around LA, it's a long long way away from home. It's and I don't know, it still sounds different but but brilliant and it is an absolute masterpiece. But the bit that I cannot ever get my head around, even you know, when you listen to Joy Division and seeing Peter Hook, who's obviously sixty odd now, play stuff that they wrote when they were sixteen, just a bunch of sort of scallies really from Manchester or whatever, like the Roses. I just cannot believe that they wrote that when they were sixteen or seventeen. So When you That's- were chasing a bee. Around the garden. I think B was a earlier. Not, yeah. <laughs> maybe. Probably not. It might not have been the same B. Okay. <laughs> so, and then moving on, you studied visual communication at Ravensbourne College, um, and that was where you met Chris Badger yep. Knight, uh, 1994. Yeah. Um, and then you pretty much started the mill straight after graduating. Yeah. Um, I, I graduated on the Thursday, and I was running on the Monday. So Solomon Grundy. So yeah, I was, I was a runner for a few months and then I kind of had the benefit of really knowing what I wanted to do because, you know, originally I studied art and design and graphic design at Barnsley. Then did, to be honest, I couldn't believe that it was a career. I felt it was like a hobby. I sort of still do really. Um, and then from that, I, I set myself up pretty well. Um, I weirdly went to Leicester University Prior to that, but it was terrible. The course was awful, so I went to Ravensbourne instead, which is much more specific. And, yeah, that had sort of three tiers to it. It was like you started with graphic design, and the best thing it did for us was, um, because it was quite prestigious to get in, it was like 14 to 1, so we all thought we were like, you know, best designers in the world on the first day. And they basically told us, you know, you're not, no one is. Here's a 10 centimetre by 10 centimetre grid. It basically just absolutely levelled you. And that's where the whole idea of celebrating the constraint comes from. It's like, right, take the bits that you've got and arrange them in the best possible way. So that was design. And then we had a, a moving image section to that course, which I jumped upon. And we had great relationships with, with the mill. And a guy that actually was the reason I went to that college, it was called uh, Andrew Wood, who was actually called Barnsley, because he's from Barnsley. He was, you know, he's at the mill as well. And then uh, me and him got to know each other and I ended up joining the mill based on not him recommending me. He said that he didn't want the responsibility of having a friend there. But then within weeks, we were working together. And uh, yeah, we had a good thing about music, though, because he's a massive Marillion fan. And obviously, I'm not. Um, so we had a rule, no Marillion, no fall, no joy division. So every time we used to do a job together, you know, he's my senior, he was my mentor, we would pick a genre of music that we didn't know anything about. So we do like sit next to each other for five weeks under quite a lot of pressure. So we pick a genre. And the most successful one, I think, was the country and western. Listening to country and western for five weeks, we learned wow. an awful lot about Johnny Cash before Johnny Cash became cool again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Deep absorption. I love it. <laughs> um, and tell me about being a flame artist and just for people that don't know. Yeah. Back then, the mill was much more 
post-production. Now it's much more much more involved up front. That's what I pushed in my, my career. But um, when you start as a flame artist, you basically, agency writes a commercial, chooses a director, they shoot the spot, the spot gets edited, comes to us, it gets, you know, goes through a colour process, and then we effectively put it together. And that could be in its simplest form of just basically stringing the edit together and putting a title on it. That is its that, that basic form. Or the real complex stuff that, you know, over the years, you know, multiple plates, you know, uh, CGI, all of that stuff. I've not really explained it. And the rest of the flame artists that know me will probably say thanks for undermining what we do. But, um, yes, oh. with the last, I guess, with the last um, stop before the commercial would go on, go on air. So, you know, it's incredibly creative, incredibly high-pressured, um, and, you know, these agencies have been working on these scripts for like six months to a year. And you're on it, you might be on it for a day, or you might be on it for a, for five weeks. So you've got to translate how important it is to them as it is to you. And, you know, I really like people. I really like creating imagery. I really like solving problems. Mm. And, uh, you know, and to be honest, it does relate back to what my dad did for a living, putting cars back together. You know, you take a, a mess and fix it. Not saying that everyone's work's a mess, but... Stuff that doesn't make sense. Yeah. You put it together, makes sense. And then, yeah. So, I mean, you know, ni- late 90s and early 2000s in, in London was, for me, like, you know, some of the best commercials uh, and music videos around at the time. So I, um, I was very lucky to to have worked on a lot of the big spots, along with bands like, the, obviously, the Levi's um, for Ringen and the Sony PlayStation Mental Wealth. I don't know if you remember that one with a strange-looking girl. Mm. That was a Chris Cunningham classic, and that was... Um, can't take the credit for that. I was a bit of bands as a ridiculous savant uh, mind working on that one. Um, but yeah. And how did you and Chris have the idea to bring the mill to LA? And what was what was even that like? You know, establishing it here. Well, uh, it was so years ago. A company had asked me if I'd like to go over there, and to be honest, it was the only thing I thought. Oh well, that could be worth leaving the mill for. But then I, I chatted with Robin and I said, look, that is very interesting. I don't quite think I'm particularly ready for that. It's easy to get ahead of yourself with, you know, the work that you you, you do when you're working on the, the good stuff with with other people. But I said, look, if the mill ever wanted to do LA, I'd be interested. And then when our New York opened, um, happily I say I did their first job when New York mill opened. And uh, I did um, a couple of music videos on the back of that as well with a director called Brian Belatek uh, for CeeLo and LP, which is... Weirdly, a few of the lads can't believe I worked on that, you know, you know, white boy from England um, having an impact on stuff that they liked when they were growing up. But um, So I really sort of, I think I sort of got my head around the American client and market and that gave me confidence to when it did come up, you know, we were thinking about setting up LA, what do you think? I said, yeah, absolutely. Didn't really think about it, to be honest. It just felt, it felt as natural as, as anything. So maybe I should have thought about it a bit, but. It's done. We've done all right. So you've done. You've done more than all right. So now I have to ask: What music would you send into space? Well, how long we got? Because this is the one I struggle with. <laughs> of why? Is it to annoy people? Is it to put people off? Is it to to annoy people? I think you're the only person what? I've met that had a reaction like, "Well, yeah, I'll make the aliens really confused or well, really angry." <laughs> Well, obviously, I... Playing Queen's worst song. Exactly. Or Meatloaf's... Uh, anything by Meatloaf. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, it's a long song. 
so yeah, after Meatloaf and Queen's worst ever song and Status Quo's worst ever song got vetoed by... Um, some... I did not veto. <laughs> and I did not, Phil. No. This is a, a no, entirely it's you. my decision. <laughs> uh, I thought, well, you know, why don't we pick a song that is... Um, I was trying to avoid. I was trying to make it a bit more about the world because I think this this song is very much about England. Well, it's actually London because uh, it's about the Kinks, but it's a great song. So, um, Waterloo Sunset. Let's take a listen to Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks. That was Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dublab. I'm BT Wolf. We're here with the awesome. Oh, I hate the word awesome. Me too. <laughs> We're here with the. Uh, what's what's a good adjective for you, Phil? Herb. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we're here with the all right, Phil Crow. And while we were listening to that. You got a text from yeah. one of your brothers with a fact check. Uh, you remember me saying about three minutes ago that, Rob, I've, I've got something wrong. Uh, the text says, it's great so far. Fact check, uh, colon, shell logo <laughs> garage correct. Awa stereo was from Uncle Robert and Auntie Angela, not Susan and Tony. So I apologise to everyone that I've offended. Okay, really sorry about that. This isn't the BBC. <laughs> I don't check things beforehand. I mean, and I don't screen the guests for, you know, I, exactly. I, I light doses of lying and I stuff do, like I that. I really don't think Auntie Angela's going to be listening to this, to be honest. <laughs> Or Tony and Susan. Susan might be. Anyway. Yeah. So you you brought the mill over in 2007? Seven, yeah. So it's now 12 years since it's been in, in LA. Uh, you, no, January the 1st, 2007. So, yeah, 13. God, yeah, God, it's yeah. 13, yeah. And you yeah. must feel, you know, pretty proud, to put it lightly, of just having grown the company so effectively while maintaining a lot of the core things you believe in, you know, like keeping that close-knit feel, like the importance of relationships. Yeah. Tell me why relationships particularly are so key to you. It's bizarre, you know, it sounds like I'm name-dropping, but I did get the chance to work with Chris Cunningham, who, um, you know, I still, I still dine out on the Portishead video that we did. You know, there's obviously a few people worked on it, but it's the biggest, biggest break I had. It's a beautiful video called um, Only You, and it's shot underwater. And it was my job, and with a few others, obviously, but you know, basically sat 14 hours a day removing bubbles from Beth's mouth. But the reason I bring it up is because, you know, I'd been there three months and I'd worked with some really, really tough directors uh, assisting Barnes. And I did think, oof, bloody hell, this is, this is mean. You know, I mean, I get it, the work's great, but these people are not very pleasant. And then... I met Chris and his editor, Gary Knight. Chris just reminded me of my mate, Matt, who was a bit of a grebo, <laughs> you know. And it felt good because it's like, oh, this guy's he's odd. He's really funny. He's weird, especially Gary as well. And it, I realised then, I thought, right, if I can basically base a career on actually forming relationships, because that's what I like to do with people, I can control semi-control who, who I work with and have some sort of guidance to my own sort of destiny, really. So that, that's kind of what I sort of did. And, and, you know, some people you click with, some people you don't. You know, I remember Chris Chris and I, first conversation he had was an album called Frequencies by LFO. 
and he understood all the warp records. Rob had introduced me to all of that, and it was great because you kind of know where where someone's at with that. And then you know, some a few years ago, and we still brought up that album, and it dawned on me quite quickly that I thought you can be really successful if you just look after people, and they'll look after you. And you know, it's like my dad always said: if you treat somebody right, how you want to be treated, then if they're an arsehole to you, so what? You know, at least you tried to do the right thing. So I think, I think it's a simple sort of philosophy, really. Just try to do the right thing by people, and 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 it'll come back in um, in shovels, whatever you call it. Really, is amazing what can come from just being a good person. All, all right. Yeah, and you're definitely all right, and you're definitely someone that you know you can really tell that you care about people and you can really tell that you care about the work that you do and that is everything um you haven't become jaded you haven't become bored you haven't become apathetic um and i think that's part of your magic so now i have to consider the day when phil crow will no longer be on this earth left the building (laughs) yeah uh you have you will have left the building very good set up for the song that you would like to have played at your memorial well it was going to be uh the slightly more comedic uh probably could argue bad taste if it was a a cremation uh elvis's burning love because as we discussed it would be quite humorous to there was a hunk of hunk of burning love as you go into the fire but I decided that I think If I Can Dream by Elvis uh, would just be you know a, rem- a remarkable uh, thing to hear in a, in a memorial it's amazing it's preposterous and it's everything that Elvis was let's take a listen <laughs> to If I Can Dream there must be lights burning brighter Got to be birds flying higher in a sky more blue. If I can dream of a better land where all my brothers walk hand in hand, tell me why. That was If I Can Dream by Elvis, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab here with Phil Crow and Phil. You've been cremated or <laughs> whatever, but that was your funeral track. Uh, and you opted for that over Burning Love. Yeah. <laughs> Sensibly. I feel like the <laughs> funeral pun song thing has been done quite a lot. Uh, I mean, Except the hunk of love is a, is a pretty... Hunk of Burning Love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it might yeah, be a bit questionable. But, um, I don't think my dad would mind saying, but at my granddad's uh, funeral, we, we played out to Simply the Best by Tina Turner. Which was which raised a few eyebrows, nonetheless. But my dad said, "I don't think my granddad ever knew Tina Turner was." So that was I just remember the fact Who that chose we chose that song. I think Auntie Margaret, but it was typically again. I'm just going to sound pretentious, but very much pathos. The fact that we're at a funeral and Tina Turner, simply the best, is blasting out on a you for know, your grandpops, granddad Shadrach, <laughs> who, as my dad said, I don't think ever listened. To ever listened to Tina Turner but anyway it was um, that was quite a good memory actually. so you've had an amazing time at the mill and now you're looking forward to a new experience a new a new chapter for Phil what are you excited about right now um 
it's weird because you know I think I have to step back a bit to to go forward. But you know, over the years, the company's grown and it's it is going in a you know slightly different direction to certain sort of beliefs and things that that I want to do. And I went and had a chat with somebody who was brilliant, and we sort of like whittled down the things that are important to me, and that's a really good way of deciding. You know, sort of what you're about, and not not I'm not really changed that much since I started at the mill, or certainly LA. I mean, certainly grown into myself by scaling. I think I think scaling as a person, scaling as as a business. But you know, I think creativity, integrity, and independence. That's where I'm looking forward to, and that's what I'm looking at moving into. They're the three factors that have led me to you know resign after 22 years because you can't fight against something that isn't you anymore and otherwise you're just a hypocrite as well so it's a bit of a risk but I think you know for me it's the absolute right thing to do and even just having those three sort of words to pin it on I know it would be great because the stuff that just that we've done together having more opportunity to do stuff like that obviously you've got to you know there's a commercial aspect to it because we've got to live we've got to pay for stuff but you know, I know so many DPs and directors out there that, that do love working on commercials that want to work on movies. But, you know, whenever we do anything that, that is slightly sort of, you know, esoteric or to do with art or music, everyone just gets a little bit more excited about it. So mm. I, I think I want to set up something that has the balance, really. The balance of stuff that the reality of life that you basically have to have a job. It's not free for all. It's not, we're not in art school forever. But have a but, you know, slightly philanthropic edge. I'd love to work with colleges as well. You know, like just like I did when I was 19, 20. I just thought, what a wonderful thing that you had. You had people coming in from industry talking to you that you actually read about. I mean, yeah, I knew about the mill from a typography book long before. It's just stuff like that. I know it's, it's weird because it feels like you're going back. But I think returning to old values and just putting them in a different direction. What is the album that you'd pass on to the next generation? Well... At the risk of using the word Proustian and Rush, I'm being called pretentious by this next choice. But it has to be Histoire de Melody Nelson by Serge Gansberg. Oh, I think that's how you say Gansberg. Um, it's just a masterpiece. It's 28 minutes long. It's a ridiculous concept album. It's probably better that you don't know what it's about because um, it's just <laughs> Serge at his weirdest. But um, when Serge died... We got a comic strip. Um, Decca did these uh, CDs uh, of compilations. Obviously, we'd all, you know, heard Chetem because it was you know, hilarious as a teenage boy listening to that, especially in your bedroom. And then um, I remember working with Jan Koonen, this French director, on this Boots commercial, first job I led. And I was listening to some uh, some Serge, and he was thrilled that an Englishman had uh, actually got a Serge album. And he says, do you know this album? So he actually bought me that album. And, yeah... It's just fantastic, and the arrangements on it. So the arrangements were done by British musicians, which is quite good in uh, Maida Vale. And I don't, I don't know, it's just it's phenomenal. I think everyone should listen to this because if anyone likes Beck or Neil Young and all those, yeah, this album's been much uh, listened to. I think. Well, we're going to take a listen to that in just a minute as we close out. But before we do that, what is the thread that connects all of your Orange Juice for the Year choices? I could say it's me, <laughs> really. But no, I think it's it's the combination of everything that you know I'm about, stuff I believe in. You know, there's a lot of stuff about my, you know, growing up. I'm in LA, it's five thousand miles away from, from Barnsley, but it's still 
it just ties together really well. I felt I've grown into it through through what I've done. And like I said, my career is, is a hobby. One thing I didn't mention, when you're a flame artist, especially not Barnes' assistant, is one of the great, great motivators. When you're a lead, you get to choose the music. So you can actually sit and work on stuff. If you've not got clients, listen to music and radio all day, every day. So I did that for about, probably about 14 years. I just thought that was ridiculous that you had a job that you could you know, make pretty pictures and listen to good music all the time. So. And what is it that you hope to leave behind with the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? Commercials is one thing, and I think that's... Mike has always said it's still valuable and relevant. Um, but I think setting something up that, that can basically house different types of, of work and, you know, if there's a philanthropic edge to it, fantastic. But, you know, if we're connected to the arts, that's still incredibly important and i still love music videos there's never any money in them but i don't know music videos art installations the stuff that you're doing more of that really having a multi multi-faceted sort of output is is kind of what i want to progress and not just for me the whole idea is I'll hopefully provide a framework and a vehicle for like-minded people to come together that's not just visual it's an incredible overlap and hopefully increased potential and opportunities so that makes sense. Well, Phil, thank you so much for sharing your orange juice for the years today. And now we're going to listen to Cargo Cult yeah. by Serge Gainsbourg. <laughs> 